we need to grow. I have been blessed to watch as a few months ago, when we first set out on this campaign, we talked about this is more than just money. This is about growing. And then to see people engage in Bible study, engage in prayer, and choose to grow. We need to grow. We live in a society that has problems. A society that needs change. The society that, if you will, needs revolution. We need to revolutionize our spiritual walk. I want to give you just some some statistics. In 2018, in the United States, 1.2 million people, 1.2 million people visited an emergency room due to a physical assault. In 2018, over 600,000 babies were killed. In 2020, there were 1.6 million weddings and 600,000 divorces. We live in a society that needs change. But it's not just society. We live in a city that needs change. Did you know in our city that nearly 1% of people in our city will spend a day or a night, not a day, will spend a night either in a homeless shelter or on the street this year? In the state of Nebraska, over 15,000 people will have to enter a rehab facility. In 2020, in the state of Nebraska, 72 cases of human trafficking were recorded. The problems of the world are problems that we have here. So, in Pamela's prayer, she mentioned Acts 17.6. And the way the ESV words this, it's, it's a really cool wording. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I just showed you some numbers that we need a world, we live in a world that needs to be turned upside down. How do we go from where we're at here to turning the world upside down? Turn in your Bibles to Acts 1. Because in Acts 1, we introduce those men who turn the world upside down. So let's understand them, and let's look at how we as a church can impact this world, how we can be part of turning the world upside down and changing the world that we live in. What we're going to see in Acts 1 is we're going to see God has a recipe, and God's recipe involves, first of all, God. He's the one who does the work. But second of all, he does it based on a truth, a truth that is worth changing the world for. And finally, what we'll see is that it takes a team that is convinced, a team of individuals that are convinced they can be part of this change, they can be part of God's work. So turn in your Bibles, like I said, to Acts 1. And where I'm going to start is in Acts 1, verses 1 through 5. Let me start. 
Acts 1, 1 through 5. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In order to understand the book of Acts, we first have to look backwards at the book of Luke. Because Luke wrote two books, he wrote a two-volume part, really, intending for you to read the book of Acts in light of the book of Luke. It'd be sort of like watching Avengers Endgame without ever having watched Avengers Infinity War. It's a little rough. If you're going to make sense of it, you have to understand the prequel. Well, that's what we have in the book of Luke. And what I want to point out is exactly what Luke did. Luke presented Jesus, the solution to the world's problem. You see, I mentioned a bunch of statistics. And no rules, no individual people trying hard will ever fix the problems of the world. Luke showed that. Only Jesus, only the God-man could fix the problems of the world. So Luke begins by introducing Jesus as the God-man with his birth narrative. As we go through the book of Luke, we get a variety of stories about Jesus' impact, the miracles he does, the proof that he's God, the proof that he's man, and we reach a climax, and that climax is the crucifixion, the God-man dying. Why? Because only the death of Jesus could solve our sin problem. Only the death of Jesus could bring resolution to the world's problems. And his resurrection, three days later, proved that Jesus could defeat the world's problems. So when we read the book of Acts, we start with this knowledge that Jesus came, he died, he rose again three days later, and he is the solution. He is the centerpiece. When we talk about changing, it's Jesus that we center on. So, what we see is that revolution or change should only come from the work of God. We cannot change anything unless it is the work of God. We cannot do anything productive unless it is the work of God. The book of Acts only makes sense after Jesus, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus provided the ability to change. For thousands of years, people had tried to follow rules to fix the world's problems, and they failed. In fact, people who don't know Jesus continue to try this same 
tactic at solving the world's problems. It doesn't work. Jesus, and Jesus alone, provides the ability to change. In Acts 1 here, we read about, first of all, that this was written to Theophilus, somebody who loved God. That's what the word Theophilus means. It's a name, lover of God. And Luke tells us that Jesus, after suffering, in verse 3, after suffering, presented himself and gave convincing proofs that he was alive. The idea there of convincing proofs is Jesus appeared to the disciples and he presented himself as having defeated death. You see, it's not just that Jesus provides the ability to change. It's that God presented himself to the disciples. He provided the opportunity to change. God provided the opportunity for change. But I want you to catch something that happens in verse 4. Jesus comes presents himself to the disciples many times across the period of 40 days. I think they're convinced. Actually, that's what Luke tells us, that the word that uh, convincing proofs, it comes out of logic, and it's that of something that has been proven. And then Jesus tells them in verse 4, just wait. Just wait. What do you mean just wait? Okay, you were dead. We saw you crucified. Now you're alive. This is big. And now you say, just wait. Because, remember, God provides the opportunity. It's not about us. It's not about what we know. It's not about what we do. It's God. It's his timing. Charles Spurgeon stated that without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without a wind. We are useless. Only God's Spirit brings change. We have the greatest news ever, but only God's Spirit brings change. So what did the disciples do? They waited. We're going to see that later, but the disciples waited. What did they wait for? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. The word baptized is kind of a problematic word because it's actually not really an English word. You see, the word baptized is a word that was invented a little more than 500 years ago. And here's the reason it was invented. Because if we translate the word for what it actually means, people are going to understand baptism. So we need to invent a new word. And they invented the word baptism, which actually comes from Greek, baptizo. Baptize means to immerse. Unquestionably, without doubt, no argument about it, the word baptize means to immerse. If we were translating the Bible and we were being 100% accurate, we would say, in this verse, we would say, in a few days you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. We would say, go you unto all people and immerse them. That's a problem if you believe different things. 
And so we invented a new word. I want you to understand that this says you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. You will be flooded with the Holy Spirit. Wait, because the Holy Spirit is coming and he will flood your life. He will change you. So what is my action step? My action step for these verses is allow Jesus to change you. Allow Jesus' Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent, to change you. Allow the Holy Spirit to change the world. That is the world's solution. It's not us. It's Jesus. It's not what I have to say. It's the Holy Spirit's flooding power that can change in somebody. If you have never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, if you have looked at the book of Luke and you said, what do you mean he died? What do you mean he rose again three days later? For my sins? Yes, that's the step that you need to take. But maybe you're here and you have accepted Jesus as your Savior. Then I ask you, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to change you? Are you asking the Holy Spirit to flood you, to wipe away anger, anxiety? Maybe there's a habitual sin that you need to turn over to the Holy Spirit. What about our church? Are there areas that as a church we need to turn over to the flooding power of the Holy Spirit and ask him to come upon us as a church and change us? All right, I want to move on to the next point. So the next point, I'll I'll give you the point and then we'll read the verses. The next point is that revolution comes from a truth that is captivating. Revolution comes from a truth that is captivating. Let's look at this truth, verses 6 through 11. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Revolution comes from a truth that is captivating. The first part of that truth, the captivating truth, is that Jesus is king. Look at what the disciples ask. They say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The disciples recognized Jesus is king. Now, remember I said that the book of Acts can only be understood once you've read the book of Luke. Think for just a second about these men back in the book of Luke. How would you describe them? Bold, brave warriors? No. How about confused cowards? Kind of like we are, I mean, frankly, I am. Okay? 
How do you go from being a confused coward to, okay, are we ready for the kingdom? The only way is if you're convinced that there's a king that you're going to follow. We'll talk more about that. But they realized Jesus was king. They realized the truth that Jesus is king. Captivating truths are based on fact, and it is a fact, really an unquestionable fact, that Jesus is king. There's really no historical fact that is better known than Jesus. If you look through the books of history, ancient history, we know so much more about Jesus than anybody else. We have more documents about Jesus than basically anybody else. Jesus is king, and this is a fact. Don't let people question that. Jesus mentioned the coming of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there had been a number of prophecies. I'll give you some of these. Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, Zechariah 12. All prophecies that spoke about when the Holy Spirit comes and then spoke about there's going to be a kingdom. So Jesus has just said, wait for the Holy Spirit. What do you think the disciples think is coming next? A kingdom. It was a reasonable expectation. So let me give you just a quick sort of image to keep in the back of your mind. How do we then make sense of prophecy? Have you ever driven to Colorado and seen the mountains off in the distance? Okay. When you first see those mountains off in the distance, does it look like there are tens, twenties, hundreds of miles between one peak and the next peak? No. That's what prophecy is like. Looking at a mountain from a distance. You know it's there. You know that sometime you're going to get from one peak to the next. But you don't know about that big valley in between. And that's what the disciples are seeing, as they see the Holy Spirit. So isn't the kingdom coming now? And Jesus says, just wait. Not yet. You've got to wait. It's in God's timing. The second thing that we see is this truth that the Spirit is present. The Spirit is present and he is going to change things. He's going to give you power. He's going to be my witness. Not just in Jerusalem. Not just in Judea. Not just in Samaria, but unto the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is present, and he will be my witness. Captivating truth is based not just on truth, but on your experience of it. And the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to experience Jesus' power. Next thing, the gospel, the truth, the gospel is universal. I do not like trivia. I'm not good at it. There are some things I'm good at. There are some things I'm not. Trivia is not one. Because I look at those trivia-type questions and I think, it just takes up brain space. <laughs> who cares? Sorry, that's who I am. That truth in trivia is not universal. It might be true all the time, but I just don't care. It doesn't apply to me. Look at the gospel. Look at what 
what Luke writes. The gospel is going to be a witness. It's going to be witnessed through the Holy Spirit, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea. It's applicable not just in Judea, though. It matters in Samaria. But even then, it has a bigger impact. The gospel matters to the whole world. That's a truth that is captivating. Let me show you the fourth aspect of this truth. The fourth part of this truth is that Jesus is coming. There are lots of things that are true that don't impact your life. Lots of things that are true that don't impact your life. This truth changes your life because Jesus is coming. He is coming again. And he is going to set up his kingdom. Remember, what were the disciples asking? Are you going to do it now? Not yet, but it's coming. That is a truth that's applicable. So what is my action step? What do you need to do in light of this? Focus on the truth of the gospel. There is so much out there that you can learn. There's so much out there that you can study. There's so much out there that you can talk about. Don't let secondary truths ever trump the truth, which is the gospel. Jesus died because I'm a sinner, and I had no way to fix that problem. But he rose again three days later. He ascended to heaven, and he is coming back again so I can be with him. That's the truth to focus on. That's the truth the world needs. Third point comes from verses 12 through 15. Revolution comes from a team that is convinced. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Revolution comes from a team that is convinced. Let me ask you a series of questions here. First question, where were the disciples when Jesus was crucified? Think back to the book of Luke, maybe some of the other gospels. Would we know they weren't with Jesus. They were gone. They scattered. I want you to remember that. In Jesus' toughest hour, the disciples had scattered. In fact, Peter denies Jesus three times. They were cowards. I would have been a coward. I will admit that to you. I think I would have scattered too. Where are they now? Where are the disciples now in the absence of Jesus? Remember, he's just gone up to heaven. He's just ascended to heaven. Where are they? It says that they walked 
a Sabbath day's journey. It's like 3,000 feet, not real far. And they're in a room in Jerusalem. I want you to understand the significance of this. Is Jerusalem home for these men of Galilee? No. Galilee is home. Where do you go when you're in the most danger? Where is your safe place? Your home? The place you're familiar with? The place that doesn't have a bunch of rulers who just 40 days earlier killed Jesus? Where did the disciples go? To Jerusalem. That place that's not home. That place that just killed 40 days earlier their leader. They were convinced of something. What are they doing? Praying. Praying. Not strategizing. Not figuring out who's going to be their next leader since Jesus, Jesus just went up to heaven. Not worrying about all of the details of how they're going to get their meals or what they're going to do in the absence of their leader. No, they're praying. We've got 11 of the disciples plus some others for a total number of about 120. There are more than 120 people in this room. 120 people who were convinced of the resurrection, convinced enough to be brave, convinced enough to step out, convinced enough to pray. 120 people by Acts 17.6 had turned the world upside down. That's all it took. There's more than 120 people here today. We can turn the world upside down, but only through the power of God, only by following God's plan, only with the gospel. Let me ask you a question. What happened next? I love the book of Acts. In Acts 2, we see Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. He floods their life. They are immersed in the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 souls are saved. By Acts 3, Peter and John, two uneducated fishermen, are publicly speaking, publicly preaching in the temple of God. By the time we get to Acts 6, there's more than 5,000 men, plus probably their wives and children. And this small group of people realizes they need help. They appoint deacons. By Acts 8, it's not just the small group, which isn't so small anymore. They're now sending missionaries out as they send Philip to Samaria. They're fulfilling that second step. Remember, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. By Acts 10, Peter is now preaching to the Gentiles. By Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is traveling around all of the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel. And by the time we get to Acts 28... Paul is in the capital city of the world, Rome, ministering to the gospel. Jesus was probably crucified 
in either AD 30 or AD 32. The book of Acts was completed in AD 62. 32 to 62. How many years? 30. How many years have we been talking about in our capital campaign? This struck me this week. In 30 years, literally, these men turned the world upside down and changed it forever. So let me give you an action step. Join the team. I told you that revolution comes from a truth that is captivating, it comes from the work of God, and it comes from a team that is convinced. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that the work of God can blow our minds? The work of God can captivate our world. Are you willing to join in the work of God? That might mean accepting Jesus as your Savior. That might mean stepping out in faith and following Jesus in your life. It might mean contributing in a new way, serving in a new way, joining the church, being baptized. There are a number of ways that maybe you need to take a step to join the team. Will you join the team? We've been building a puzzle, and I want to finish our puzzle today. The first thing that we learned was that faith leads to faithfulness. Faith leads to faithfulness. After talking about faith and faithfulness, we learned about promise. When we added promise to faith, we learned that that leads to confidence. When you have faith and you see the promises of God, you step out in confidence. But we add to that a foundation. And in our foundation, our church, our people, our life becomes dynamic. Because if you've got faith and you've got promise and you build a firm foundation, you can move with the time without ever leaving your place. So let me add our final piece to this puzzle. The team. The people that God uses. When we have faith plus promise plus foundation and the team that God has put in place with God as the center of that team, we get a confident, dynamic church with a recipe for revolution. Let's go to Matthew 16, 18. This has been our scripture memory verse. Because our focus is Christ. Let's read this together. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Matthew 16, 18. I have a question on this verse. I was reading something about it, and I want to present to you a thought. Do the gates of an enemy fortress move? No. What does it mean? That when Christ builds his church, it is more, a stronger statement. It's not just that Satan can't come here and attack us. It is that we can push out into the world as a church to the very gates. That's the church that I believe we're called to be. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the work that you did in that very first church in Acts 1. The church that went from 120 people in a prayer service to turning the world upside down. The church that in a span of 30 years went from Jerusalem to the ends of the known world. The church that was dynamic. In the book of Acts, we see so many different people having such different impacts on the church. It was dynamic. They had faith. They knew your promises. Their foundation was in Scripture. And they had a team that was convinced. A team that knew that you were behind them. That what you were doing was simply asking them to join with you. And so I pray that we would join with you. I pray that you would give us as a church the privilege of being a dynamic church, a faithful church, a church that's willing to employ your recipe for change, a church that's willing to impact the world. In Jesus' name, amen.